Hey everyone and welcome to this edition of the Risky Business Soapbox. My name's Patrick Gray and for those of you who don't know, these Soapbox podcasts we do here at Risky Biz are wholly sponsored and that means everyone you hear in one of these are paid to be here. And today's Soapbox podcast is an interview with George Glass. Uh, George is the threat intelligence leader in the cyber risk practice at Kroll. And Kroll is a corporate risk company that's been around since 1972. Uh, obviously, it built its cyber practice, uh, you know, after the 70s. But yeah, my point is they've been around uh, for quite a while. And Kroll is actually a much bigger player in cybersecurity than most people realize. And that's because until recently, uh, they've kept a pretty low profile. Uh, but that is changing now. They're getting out there to talk about their work more and more. And sponsoring Risky Business is a way for them to do that. And here we all are, right? Uh, so in this conversation, we're going to talk about all sorts of things. Uh, you know, what's the primary vector for attacks uh, these days? Ransomware attacks in particular. Is spear phishing still king? Or, uh, you know, attacks against border devices like VPN concentrators and whatnot, you know, have they displaced them? We also look at why EDR isn't really that useful if you don't actually have anyone monitoring it and actually watching its output. Uh, and also, you know, Kroll does manage detection and response. Uh, so among its customers, which controls separate the good networks from the bad ones? You know, are there any features that tend to divide them into the good bucket and the bad bucket? So there's a bunch of insight uh, in this interview. I sent this one off to Adam Boileau uh, to have a listen to uh, before recording this intro and whatnot. And I think he described it as an entertaining and relatable chat. <laughs> so that's kind of what we were going for here. Um, but I started off by asking George, about a ransomware crew that Kroll discovered on an IR engagement. They called the group Cactus, uh, and Cactus was going wild uh, owning organizations via bugs in, in stuff like those VPN concentrators and whatnot. So I started off by asking George to tell us whether he thinks Cactus is a ransomware group that's been reconstituted from the remains of other larger groups uh, that have broken up over the last couple of years or whether they're completely new, and uh, we just went from there. So here's George Glass. I hope you enjoy this interview. It's really hard to tell uh, with some of these uh, groups exactly who's who's behind them. What we find particularly strange about Cactus is they don't really have a uh, like a, a victim blog uh, as such yet. We haven't really seen anything like that. Nothing's come up uh, on any sort of exploit website or anything like that uh, where they host the the victim uh, data. Uh, these guys I mean, given, also given that no typically... one ever really seems to pay the data ransoms. It you know it seems like more of an OPSEC liability and more drama and more visibility to actually do that. Like if I was starting a ransomware crew these days, I probably wouldn't bother with the data extortion bit either. Yeah. And you've got to pay for the hosting of all that data, right? If you're X filling terabytes of data. Yeah. With, with clean say. Bitcoin, that's not going to, with clean Bitcoin, that's not going to get you FBI'd, right? So like that's, you know, exactly. I, I, all I'm saying is like, hey, I'm, I'm sticking up for the cactus crew here of not having a leak site. <laughs> Um, but I guess, you know, is, is this the case now where, you know, these ransomware groups, and I know we're just talking about one group as an example here, but they certainly seem to have got a little bit more nebulous lately. And I think that's probably yep. because they've been feeling the heat, not just from law enforcement, but from, you know, law enforcement working in concert with SIGINT agencies and stuff. I mean, is that is that, is that the vibe right now out there? Definitely. Yeah, we're, we're seeing far more standalone groups than we did, say, back, back last year. Um, yeah. Sort of a rise of like, I think nearly thirty percent of uh, the ransomware cases are standalone groups of some kind. Mom and pop ransomware, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah. 
it's certainly happening more often now. Just this week, I think we've we've come across two more standalone groups, um, and and those are you know very typical ransomware operations, right? You get your initial access, either brute forcing something or it's coming in through some kind of uh, initial access malware. It's, and it's it's the same story. I mean, your listeners are going to get bored of this, but it's it's exploit, uh, move laterally, get AD. Get credits do do the thing, then, yeah. I mean, it's uh, that's the thing, that's right? It. It's all the it's all the same workaday stuff. I often get asked, right? Like people will ask me, like, is is, is ransomware getting better? And look, this has even been a, a topic among U.S. government officials lately, which is 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 ransomware actually getting better? Is it getting less prevalent? And to their credit, the U.S. officials say we have no idea because we don't have mandatory reporting. We don't really know. You know, and I and I guess you know, even companies like Kroll, you only know the subset of your customers who are obviously organizations that are already thinking about security, right? Like your customer base won't tell you much about, you know, the average K-12 school in Oklahoma, right? Like whether whether they're still getting rinsed. But that said, I just wondered if you have any, you know, sense of how things may have changed in the ransomware ecosystem over the last year or so. Oh, there be, there's definitely a, a, a pretty significant drop-off last year. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, definitely a drop-off of, of ransom cases, probably because of, uh, you know the, the conflict in Ukraine. I think that certainly had an impact on on things um, and all the law enforcement action that was going on. Um, but since uh, coming back from Christmas this year, uh, we've we've seen that spike way back up again. Um, and you know it is uh, you know, things like Clop just going out rinsing a whole bunch of vulnerabilities. Very easy for them to do. Um, but I mean, they're, they're, they're the... mostly doing data extortion now, though, right? Like they're not actually doing ransomware. It, it, it kind of irritates me because I, you know, I read everyone's articles in, in preparation for the weekly shows, and it, I, I will confess to being irritated when people call them a ransomware outfit because they're not actually dropping ransomware. They're a data extortion outfit these days. I mean, I know they've done ransomware in the past, but it doesn't seem to be what they're doing now. Yeah, no, I, you're absolutely right. And if we get into semantics about what a ransom actually is, are you are you paying a ransom for your data? Are you paying a ransom for your business operations? Well, see, pe- um, people will pay a, a ransom to get their operations back. But as you know, like we were talking about a few minutes ago, they don't tend to pay to get their data back. Like I, I always bring it back to the cardboard box factory thing, right? Like a cardboard box factory will pay to make the machines that make the cardboard boxes work again, but they will not pay to stop people reading their emails because their emails are really boring and no one cares about them. That's a very, very good point. But then, you know, it's, it's maybe that's some of the targeting that we've seen, especially in the last, well, yeah, let's, even even four, four months or so, uh, has been very heavily sort of professional service focused. Um, and, you know, that's probably a little bit more more juicy and, and those, those organizations have their own customers to protect yeah. uh, in that case. And they're often handling confidential to... data, et cetera, law firms, things exactly. like that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So whether that targeting is on purpose is, you know, it's very hard to tell. Um, you know, we, we know that some ransomware groups just buy initial access. They don't really care who they're buying it from or, or what the initial access is to as long as they think they can get ransom. But maybe that has something to do with some of the targeting we're seeing as well. One really interesting thing about CLOP is, you know, these days I see a particular type of like network-based uh, CVE, you know, I'll become aware of some network-based vulnerability and you can be like, if it's a trivially exploitable vulnerability in something that gets you into a device that actually holds or manages data, you know that 10 days later, you're going to be reporting on Clop owning it. Right. And it seems like some of these, you know, and Cactus, the malware group that you've sort of uh, discovered, they're the same. 
in that they're making use of these Fortinet uh, uh, and I think, you know, other vendors as well, but like VPN appliances seem to be their specialty. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems like if, if it's a bug in a device that holds data, like a file transfer appliance or something, Klopp gets it. And if it's a bug in something that will give you onward access via a service count into Active Directory, it'll be ransom, you know, actual ransomware operators who'll get it. That seems to be the division of responsibilities these days. And I'm hearing more and more about the the network exploitation style vectors than the spear phishing vectors is that something that you know that bears out in in what you've seen or is the spear phishing stuff still huge as well uh at least for us i know i can only speak to our data at least for us spear phishing is still number one of the, mm. the initial access by a fairly significant margin now, obviously we're collecting data from ir engagements and mdr stuff and it's a point of personal pride that that MDR side of stuff, we stop at the initial access, right? Because we we get it, we see it, and 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 so on. But still, spear phishing is very very prevalent. Like Quackbots, um, recently, where well, we've we've seen a, a a campaign, and you know, to the sort of trained security eye, a, a simple PDF with basically arrows going, click this button here, um, with you know a simple password underneath. Um, the amount of user interaction that has to happen in that thing. You know, you'd think with all the security training that there is going on. Yeah, they're going um, to go through 20 steps and they always find a taker. Exactly. But again, you know, I think so many people have said it, but if your security posture relies on people not clicking on things and they're just trying to do their job, right? I mean, that, as far as they're concerned, mm. that's an invoice or whatever. Um, we need to amend it to say it's your, your security relies on people not quicking, clicking through 20 steps <laughs> in, in perfect sequence uh, to get it done. But no, it's still true. Um, yeah, it certainly does hold. So, you know, are they, are they typically going, I mean, by the sounds of things, when you're talking about them going through various steps to get people to click and, you know, interact with the system, it sounds like the typical spear phishing path in these days is you know they're still after execution, not creds, right? Is that is that typically how how it's going these days? Yeah, I mean the, the execution typically leads to some kind of info stealer anyway, um, mm. and those info stealers are, are usually used as some kind of beachheading device, and then they'll drop a bunch of tools like Sliver or Cobalt Strike or something, and then they'll go and do whatever they need to do. But grabbing user creds from the machine, grabbing emails from the machine, that sort of happens automatically uh, with a lot of these yeah. sort of initial access malwares anyway. Um, so you, you kind of get no. I just meant they're not going to like fish kits or whatever, just trying to grab creds and then come back in through the VPN and hope they don't have MFA or whatever. It sounds like they're going straight up to get on the box. Yeah, yeah, that seems to be what we're seeing. Obviously, yeah, we do get a bit of phishing, um, especially in the last couple of weeks or so. Um, a lot of open redirects are being used um, for just credential phishing, but I think MFA and things like that are really sort of putting the pressure on fish kits you need to have something that can deal with mfa pretty reliably and so on um so yeah from what we're seeing it's mostly that execution on the box that gets me to a next question i mean you, you know you are an mdr of some repute you know you did just say you were able to stop some of these things from happening before they before they happen so what's the number one way what's the most fruitful technique that you know crawl uses to detect when you know, a, there is naughty code execution on a box that's come in as a result of a spearfish. I mean, because, you know, often a lot of the best detections are simple, you know. Have you yep. found a few killer detections or is it really the case of just of looking at this stuff at scale and spotting the, the needles in the haystacks? 
Yeah, there's there's certainly some some more nuances in, in detection that you can do to maybe focus on a specific piece of malware. Um, but one of the ones that we uh, we see firing all the time is you know a script interpreter, um, W script, CS, C script, something like that, um, spawning a PowerShell process, and then some netcons after that. That is really really good for detecting anything from Gootloader and Gootkit, Quackbot, Emotet. All of those sort of really nasty ones. It doesn't matter how the thing got there originally. When the actual execution happens, you're seeing the the weird PowerShell stuff. Um, weird PowerShell stuff with... is such a good indicator. <laughs> it's like it's right up there with Win- WinRAR, right? Yeah, oh, exactly. Yeah, and obviously, you know, there are some perfectly legitimate tools that choose to execute Base sixty four encoded PowerShell in <laughs> in their deployment process for whatever reason. Um, but you know those are fairly easy to to filter out of those detections, and that one for us is a, a really good indicator of uh, naughtiness happening on a machine. I mean, I know I'm going to sound like I'm just saying this to butter up all the MDRs, but like the number one thing that you know helps in these situations is having someone you know in front of a screen who can actually flag you know look at those events as they happen, right? And once you do a bit of tuning, there's not all that many of them. Yeah, I mean, there's, you've got to have very dedicated SOC analysts to make sure that those are uh, are triaged properly. And it's you know our job in Threat Intel, we've got a fantastic detection engineering team who are serious galaxy minds, you know, just to try and keep those false positives down, make sure that the alert fatigue doesn't really kick in for the the SOC guys when they're looking at this stuff, uh, and make sure they're as tight as possible uh, while still giving the the best visibility. Um, and that's you know that's why I said you know, a detection is never really finished. We're always tuning mm. the detections uh, all, all the time, and um, you know it could be that there's a new campaign going on that um, we can rely on old detections for, or we need to deploy a new one. Uh, and each one of those is a, a sort of a way up between: is this going to generate a whole bunch of false positives for us, or is this a, a properly tight detection? And that takes time. Yeah. Yeah, it does. I mean, one of the things like every time we're doing one of these, you know, usually the the uh, people who are being interviewed, you know, will whip together a one pager of like, oh, you know, here's some stuff we can talk about. One of the things on your on your like briefing sheet, which I thought was interesting, is that there is a market demand now. You know, more and more customers are asking you about time to detection, right? Like this is a this is actually what the market seems to want is like we want to find stuff quicker. What do you think is driving that as a as a market demand? Is it because the attackers are getting better at turning that initial access into you know full domain compromise, and that they've got that down to a very slick process now? I'd imagine that that is why people are, uh, are really you know twitchy about like how quickly people can detect stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there were stats back in the day of like, oh, okay, this super really long dwell time. This bad guy's been here for ages, and sure, that's. All well and good for for cyber espionage and all that sort of thing, but the I think the main thing people are worried about, obviously, is ransomware, and those guys are very quick. Um, we've we've seen initial access turn into um, a, a ransomware event uh, from our IR pipeline in a matter of hours, um, and so you know you really need to be detecting as far down the kill chain as you absolutely possibly can in those cases. And you know if it's coming into the IR side of the business. Typically, they don't have a SOC to look at those alerts. They're more reliant on the sort of automated mitigation. Um, and you know, they are just as susceptible to changes in tactics and techniques as any outfit. Um, and so, yeah, it really does rely on um, 
sort of talented people sitting behind a screen and, and looking at those alerts and, and understanding what, what the hell they actually mean. I mean, I imagine one of the challenges for an MDR company like yourselves is occasionally you're going to get a customer where you're inside their network and it's a shit show, right? Uh, you're going to have the customers where something might pop off and some controls already squashed it. You know, you, you press the generate report button and you're kind of done, right? And there's going to yeah. be the other ones where it's all it's an all singing, all dancing malware carnival 50% of the time. <laughs> What's... What differentiates those networks, really? What are the biggest differences between the ones that you see that are quite orderly versus the ones that you see that are quite chaotic? Because I'd imagine a lot of that's going to come down to, you know, fundamental things about culture and, you know, management engagement with security and all all of those sort of big macro things. But I imagine some of it's just going to be like the use of certain technologies as well. Like, you know, I know you've seen things, right? In your job, you see things, right? What separates the, 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 the good networks from the bad networks in sort of contemporary enterprise? I, I think you, you absolutely nailed it there. There's, there's certainly a lot to do uh, with culture and just sort of basic controls that could be put in place. Some of the more uh, lively networks, shall we say, um, have <laughs> a huge amount of uh, like PUP programs. Things like, uh, you know, users going and downloading uh, fake versions of Photoshop and things like that and you know, use with local admin uh, and they can just do whatever the hell they want, install whatever the hell they want. Um, so it's, it, it goes back, okay, so this is the thing because I was asking about simple things and you're you're telling me that local admin is still a big problem. Yeah, still a huge problem. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, yeah. you don't really want someone in you know, on, on your reception desk playing Steam games, right? Um, hmm. or, or, you know, downloading uh, fake versions of Photoshop so that they can, uh, you know... Edit, I mean, them playing Steam games is okay, but them having local admin to install the pirated whatever, uh, you know, version, it, that's exactly where it gets a bit that. dicey, yeah. Exactly that, yeah. yeah. And you know, never never underestimate the user's ability to, to bypass controls. And, you yeah. know, from a detection point of view, that could look malicious and, until it's been properly investigated uh, and it's just someone, you know, just trying to play some video games or edit some photos. Um, mm. That is still a, a huge thing. I mean, so local admin's a good one. You know, can you think of another one? Because that's gold. But, you know, what, what's another one that you can think of that sort of separates the, you know, the 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 nice from the nasty? <laughs> yeah, application allow listing, definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah have a, a good list of, of tools that your organization can use and just stop people from using anything else unless they've, got a very good reason to do it uh and you know we 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 help clients quite often with user grouping and understanding what groups of users need specific tools um as i said there's there's certain parts of the organization that don't need to be running a bloomberg terminal or whatever um and so just really spending the time to go and do that aspect of you know the the non-sexy side of security really does pay uh, pretty big dividends in the end yeah, it's interesting that you say that because I work pretty closely with the Airlock Digital uh, people who do uh, application uh, allow listing, and you know that stuff. That stuff is is pretty amazing at the level that they do it because, you know, as an MDR, you'd be really bored watching the networks that they're in because they're extremely granular. But even the even the simpler stuff um, that's not quite at their level um, certainly changes user culture. Right? They're they're just less likely to be you know, trying to run and install stuff because computer says no, basically, yeah. right? And that changes things. 
Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing as well is threat actors are, are perfectly aware that that is a, uh, a a potential way in. And so we've seen a whole bunch of stuff with uh, SEO poisoning and the abuse of Google Ads. Um, and you get all of the stuff that, that Google Ads will give you in, in terms of your user targeting. Um, so if someone's Googling for a specific tool, up comes the fake site, download yeah. it. The malware and uh, this has been this has pops. been a big issue. This has been a big issue over the last six months, and it's 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 got a lot worse than I think people than that I think many people realise. When you are googling for you know IT utilities these days, you are getting malicious ads that are linking to malware. Uh, you know what what sort of crews are typically running these ads? Is is that ransomware crews as well, or initial access brokers? I'd imagine it's the brokers, right, who are doing this stuff. Yeah, absolutely right. In, initial access brokers, uh, we've seen Vidar drop from it. Uh, sock ghoulish um gootkit and gootloader do this kind of interesting thing where they put a fake forum up uh and you know, there's some very helpful users in that forum they say oh no yes this solved the exact problem that you're googling for download yeah. this here and you know, those yeah. are really effective we've seen that uh really really recently actually and that's that's something that is it's hard to, to educate users to you know fully interrogate a forum page when they're just trying to again they're just trying to do their job uh, and and figure out this problem they have and you know threat actors know that and they're they're abusing it yeah i mean i i have a feeling that google's probably already taken some measures like oddly enough like i trust that i trust google to do something about this but i think anytime you're sort of starting from zero uh well maybe not zero but anytime you've got a challenge like this you can't just crush these types of campaigns immediately right like it's going to take a little bit of time yeah. and in the interim we got to worry about this one more thing god damn it yeah exactly yeah i think it's definitely i think they're definitely improved um we were able to set up some some fake malicious ads fairly easily uh and with not an awful lot of ad spend to get it to the the top of the results either so um, were you doing that as part of a red team or just out of curiosity we, we were just researching to see how uh, the the actors were doing it because um, what we were seeing is that the domain that comes up in the ad, um, obviously it's part of the design, uh, means that you can have a marketing link in there, but it's still showing the domain of the, the original product, right? So you don't have a weird marketing link in the ad, you just have the domain of the original product. Mm. Instead of the marketing link, you just replace that with a clone of a, a website and uh, a download some malicious software. And Are they still allowing that? I thought they fixed that. Oh God, anyway... <laughs> That it that definitely is... seems to be getting better, but uh, yeah, we, we're still we're still seeing um, initial access via those sort of ads, especially with yeah, Google Kit. know that. One thing I wanted to ask you too is, you know, what you think the role of sort of EDR and the bundled EPP is. You know, these days I'd imagine a lot of these places that you're in, they're going to have modern EDR suites with built-in EPP, right? It's not enough yeah. anymore, is it? It's just not well, enough. We, I mean, we go and roll out EDR um, as part of the standard sort of MDR service. Um, I have pretty. I'm not so much. I'm not so much talking about the EDR part of it, right? Because you can't have managed detection and response unless you've got EDR feeding it, right? But we had Dmitry Alperovich on the show some time ago, and he made this comment that just slipped by, and no one seized on the significance of it. When we were talking, we were having this discussion about you know the merits of EDR, right? And then. It turned to EPP. And he said, this is a guy who founded CrowdStrike, said, oh, EPP doesn't work. 
know, which I thought was a really, you know, it was a really big thing of, of him to say. And that, you know, you really need the EDR stuff and you need someone um, interpreting what's coming in over it at this time. But I guess, I guess my question is more about the EPP components of, ED, of modern EDR suites and, and just whether or not you're seeing them, you know, how much effort are the uh, are crooks putting into bypassing those things and what sort of successes are they having? I guess that's more my question. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, I don't want to say trivial. Uh, but it's not hard, right, to, to, to buy any sort of signature-based When you said you don't want to say trivial, I think what you meant to say is, I do want to say it's trivial. It's, yeah, <laughs> but I it's, shouldn't it's, say that, but yes. <laughs> it's, it's really not difficult, and um, but we, we've just done a a, uh, a little investigation on um, a tool called ScrubCrypt, uh, which could just bundle uh, a, a batch file um so uh, the uh, the stress actors call it FUD, fully undetectable, uh, and yeah, that's going to fly past all of those sorts of uh, controls, any sort of AV like that, um, compile the malware on the machine, and it's then where you you, you are reliant on the behavioral uh, heuristic detection that you get from the EDR component. You actually see it's very easy to detect the thing compiling and running. Uh, yeah, but it's very it difficult to. It's very difficult to competently, oh, sorry, not competently, but to confidently say that it's malicious, right? Uh, yes, but again, that's that's where the, the the security brains have to sort of sit down and analyze the alerts. Um, but there's a difference between actually having an alert and not seeing an alert at all, because uh, just flown past all of those sort of automated controls and signature-based detections. Um, yeah, and so those things definitely uh, are are in use right now and then you've got things like uh polymorphic malware every time you click the download button you're getting a different different hash different signature different version of that that malicious file um and it's really well, hard but to i mean that's why that's why that. edr detections tend to be based on you know what they would call like execution events right is yeah. is this an unusual event that seems to be EDR's job these days. Is like, is this weird? If so, send to some some person in a sock to have a look at it because it's weird. And that's about that's about really what it's for now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's it's for the the anomalous stuff, um, mm. the things that really should be happening on a machine day to day. Obviously, you've got you've got devs that do whatever devs do, and they they do all funky stuff, and yeah, that can yeah, yeah. but you put them on their own yeah. little. On exactly. a little network segment, you know, the padded room for the devs, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Let them bounce into the walls and, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's all fine. But no, I, I just find that interesting, right? Because I think quite often, and I do blame to an extent, like we've never really done a lot of business with the EDR companies, right? In 17 years of this show, I think we did a little bit with CrowdStrike. Uh, back in the day, we did a little bit with Silence when they were new. They weren't really EDR though. They were like the first ones to do machine learning based malware detection, which we thought was cool. So we we, we put them in Thanks. the show. Um, but they tend to oversell, right? They, they've sort of become these big behemoths of the industry and they tend to oversell their capabilities and say, you know, we stop hackers dead and whatever. And I think that that's true if you've got someone there now, of course, you know, you would actually be competing with companies like CrowdStrike because they have their own MDR offerings just for their, you know, products and whatnot. Um, but I think they sort of oversell the product and undersell the importance of, of actually having it monitored by someone competent. Right. Like, do you, do you, is that a bit of a perception that you bump up against when you're, 
you know, I imagine you would be pulled into pre-sales meetings and whatever, right? And like, is that a bit of a perception that you wind up bumping into, which is that, oh no, we're fine. We've got, you know, we've got CrowdStrike or we've got Sentinel One, you know, we don't, we don't need MDR. Yeah, I, I really couldn't agree more. Um, it, it really does come down to very talented people sitting there and understanding what is going on with the alerts, um, building alerting so that those people have a very good idea of why that alert fired in the first place. Again, that's a, a huge amount of time saving there. It's, okay, th- if this alert fires, we think it's X, Y, and Z because of A, B, and C. Um, that saves a huge amount of time with these things typically out of the box sort of bundle detections which be oh we've mapped to this mitre technique and something weird is happening because of this but what we tried to do with our sort of detection pipeline is uh, reconfigure that a little bit and say yeah if these three alerts fire that's probably going to be this quackpot campaign it starts on this date here's a link to something that we've written about it um because it's especially in an MDR outfit, there's thousands of alerts flying through that console all the time, and you need to be able to make sense of them sort of at a glance. Um, and so that's that's the the key part of the, the MDR component is having very skilled, very talented people um, ready to understand whatever alert may may come across their screen. No, I mean I agree with you, but I guess the question is more that you know I'm wondering about the perception out there that people don't realise they need it because they think they've got their EDR, so they're sweet. You know, like that's that's yeah. one of the questions. Is that something you run into? Uh, I think typically uh, a lot of the customers customers that we that I deal with anyway are uh, usually a Microsoft shop of some of some kind. Uh, they think the defender's going to be doing a lot of this stuff for them. Um, but the whole the whole wrap the value add of the MDR service is uh, precisely to stop that kind of thinking. Right? You've you've got uh, you've got people that that do believe that just having AV is good enough still. Uh, and they, they yeah. need to be told, you know, we need to be detecting behavioral stuff or they think, okay, I've just got a scene. I should see everything, right? I should have total visibility of my network. And obviously that's, that's not going to be the case a lot of the time. So um, yeah, a lot of it is, is educating and, and luckily we have a, a huge amount of cases to draw from where we can say, well, these people didn't have this tool and they didn't see X, Y, and Z and now you know, they're in a bit of a bother. Um, so that's that's sort of the the mindset that a lot of customers uh, would tend yeah. to have. So it's still prevalent out there. It's still something that they... I think so, yeah. Yeah, it's, it seems like, you know, MDR is this thing, you know, and I've said this on the show before, right? Like when it first came along, managed, you know, MSSPs or whatever, like they would they would just take all your logs and then not look at them, but allow the customer to check a compliance box that said they had monitoring, right? Like, And uh-huh. it was a race to the bottom, the first iteration of this whole industry. Now it seems a little bit different. You know, there's there's Crawl, there's, you know, there's others, right? There's There's some very competent MDR shops out there these days. You know, these days it seems like you're not so much buying someone to look at every single event. What you're doing is buying access to a team of people who they call these days detection engineers and that's actually a relatively new term you know yeah. in in the industry like i don't recall hearing it much 5 years ago right like a detection engineer you know so how much of the of what people buy from you is that sort of detection engineering component because i'd imagine that's most of the value yes yeah it's it's everything that we do and it's great that i get to say this being threat intel 
uh, is is intelligence led, right? And it doesn't matter where we get that intelligence from, whether it be from IR cases, uh, OSINT, um, working with with other industry partners. All of that is boiled down into the detection engineering function, um, and those detections, as I say, are going to be as close to the mark as we can possibly get them, um, so that the the SOC has a very good idea of what they're looking at when that, that comes across their screen. Um, and then the other component is the response component, right? So um, we, we the big R and MDR is actually we're going to go in there and, and fix whatever problem that you may be having. We're not just going to log and flog. Uh, we're actually going to go in there and remediate uh, to the best of our ability anything that, that we detect is, is potentially malicious. Did you just call it log right? and flog? I love that. That's a that's an industry <laughs> term I haven't heard before. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely... Uh, I, th- I think there's there, there are perceptions that that was happening for quite a few years. Um, the standards have definitely changed, and people are looking very very closely at the, the sort of outfits that. Um, they, and the, do I got to say though, there used thing. to be there used to be resistance to the R, right? There used to be resistance to yeah. the idea of giving an external third party access to your computers to actually change them. You know, definitely. Uh, and again, this is a conversation that came up as part of that whole broad conversation that I had with Dmitry Alperovich, uh, you know, a little while ago. And he said, like, you know, everything that they did was so much more valuable if customers would allow their people to actually get hands-on with the machines. He's like, you need that because all of the threat actors, man, they're not going to hit you while your staff's in the office. They know that the (laughs) staff's out of office, right? So, like, the idea of having this amazing detection capability and, you know, he sort of recounted to me that they had issues where their team had to just sit back and watch customers getting owned and all they could do is like ring them and say, you need to get into the office and stop the horrible things that are happening to your network. So I guess there is a question in here, right? Which is, are people still reluctant Um, or has that changed? Like, you know, and I guess this is where Kroll being a sort of old established, you know, uh, brand stuffed full of ex FBI people uh, kind of comes in handy because there's a there's a trustworthiness factor there, right? Um, but is it still something that people resist? De- definitely, definitely. It's yeah. it can be very challenging to get um, organizations to to trust us on rules of engagement. Um, you know, I, I think that their worst fear is you know a production environment may be impacted by something. Some remediation needs to happen, but you know. By w- but the whatever. people on your team don't have the right context or whatever, and they might make something fall over. Exactly. Right? Like, oh, okay. yeah. hit the isolate button on that, you know, production endpoint, and your website's got, you know, that that sort of thing. Of course, that's not quite real world exactly what happens, but um, I could, I definitely relate. With yeah, that. but in their in their sort of executive executive lizard it, brains, like that's how it's, you know, that's how it's working, exactly. right? <laughs> like, oh, yeah. I don't know. they want the passwords to our machines. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I I got no problem putting my hand on my heart and saying, like, if you're going to use MDR, please, for for the love of God, give your give your provider access to your environment. I mean, you know, you can also how customizable. I'm just curious now, like, how customizable are these? um, You know, the the extent to which you can engage, right? Like, can they say you can respond here but not here, and you can respond in this way but not that way? It's almost like you know, people have got you know, do not resuscitate uh, (laughs) instructions. (laughs) Like, is it is there an equivalent of like sort of medical instructions for for the um, uh, for your customers? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we 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 do it to um, even the 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 user level and the, the the system, right? So if there's a particular system that is a production environment and they don't want full. Uh, 
network isolation without being called out first. We can absolutely do that. That's absolutely fine. Um, it, as long as you tell us, uh, we we can support that. That's that's not a problem. And we've had it. Where Does that get complicated? Users... Do you need to keep like a manifest for every customer? Or yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Technical information, uh, like a technical information pack of of all of that stuff, uh, and it, it really helps if. Uh, we're kept up to date on those things as well. <laughs> <laughs> this is a man speaking from obvious trauma. But George Glass, that's all we've got time for. Uh, it was a pleasure to chat to you. I'll, I'll drop a few links into the, um, you know, the, the, the description for this, um, uh, for this podcast so people can go and have a look at some of your research on cactus and also on uh, colorblind. Uh, great to chat to you. Really nice to just have a nice freewheeling chat about, uh, about everything that you've been up to over there at Kroll. And uh, yeah, look forward to doing it again. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. That was George Glass of Kroll there. And uh, big thanks to Kroll for being a Risky Business sponsor. And big thanks to George for uh, having that conversation with me. Very enjoyable stuff. Uh, I do hope you enjoyed this edition of The Soapbox, uh, but I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening.